Kia ora koutou and welcome to New Zealand Anesthesia, the podcast linking Aotearoa anaesthetists with what's going on across the motu and beyond. I am Dr Morgan Edwards, the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists Vice President, and it's a pleasure to host the NZSA's podcast. Whether you are at work, in your office, your commute, or on your daily walk or run, we hope you find it an insightful and informative listen. This is our second podcast, and we really appreciate the enthusiastic feedback we've received from listeners. I am really excited and honoured to interview today's guest. We have anaesthetist Dr Leona Wilson, who is ANSCA's Executive Director of Professional Affairs. Born in Timaru, Leona studied medicine at University of Otago's Medical School in Dunedin and undertook her anaesthesia training and experience in London and Amsterdam, returning to Aotearoa, New Zealand to complete her fellowship. Since 1983, Leona has practiced in Wellington. When you look at Leona's career trajectory, what stands out immediately is that there are so many firsts. First female head of anaesthesia services at Wellington Hospital, first woman to chair the New Zealand National Committee for the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists, and the first woman and New Zealander to be elected as president of ANSCA in 2008. Leona has been at the leading edge of medical education in anaesthesia for decades as an instructor and educator, and instrumental to professional standards and accreditation. Her impact on advancing patient safety has been significant. She was the co-founder of the New Zealand Medical Law Reform Group, which led to changes in the medical manslaughter provisions of the Crimes Act. The Crimes Amendment Act contributed to patient safety through open reporting and assessment of sentinel and serious events within our healthcare system. She also advocated for the reintroduction of the anaesthesia perioperative mortality reporting in New Zealand. These achievements were recognised when she was made an Officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2011, and in that year she also joined a very select group when she was awarded the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists Lifetime Membership. Leona, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us to share your experiences and insights over what has been nothing short of an extraordinary career. Well, thank you. And it doesn't seem so extraordinary until I read out the um, questions that you had on the list. Now, I wanted to begin by looking at leadership. You've had so many varied leadership roles contributing to the specialty and the wider healthcare system, such as education and anaesthesia, exams, standards, while also being a practicing clinician. What or who influenced and motivated you to step up into these leadership roles? It was really difficult thinking back to when it all first started. And I think what really happened is I took advantage of opportunities that offered rather than actually seeing a role model. I think once I got involved in the New Zealand Committee of the College, then definitely I think the ones who promoted me at that stage were John Gibbs, um, who was prof in Christchurch, and Barry Baker, who at that stage was down in Dunedin. They were the two members of the Board of Faculty on the committee. And so they said, hey, Leona, you should do this, you should do that. And it was Barry who urged me to go for counsel. So, But that was sort of mid-career. But I think earlier it was either um, people identified something in me or there was a gap and there weren't as many of us then. But they were probably the people that I would um, identify the most of giving me that direction into the, the greater parts of leadership. 
Now, and what, in your opinion, actually defines great leadership? What are the attributes that will hold you in good stead to be a successful leader? It's really interesting. I think one of the best things is actually understanding yourself and really able to see yourself as others see you. If you've got illusions about yourself that are out of keeping with how others see you, then you're not going to be able to do it. I think you have to have a sense of responsibility towards others, towards whatever you're leading, the organisation you're leading, the people you're leading. You have to be able to listen and actually hear what people are saying and not just what you'd want them to hear. Um, You have to, at some stage, be able to project the future and project a positive future, a future that actually people want to join. So it needs a certain degree of introversion, which is tricky for anaesthetists who are known to, uh, sorry, a degree of extroversion. We're known to be slightly introverted. So you need some extroversion just to be able to project that out there. You don't need a lot, but just enough to be able to um, and bring people in and, and join people together and make people feel that they belong. Um, that sense of belonging is just so powerful uh, when you're leading a group of people. Right, so having a community with a collective vision, importantly, that everybody feels a part of. And I think not allowing in-groups and out-groups to form, that's actually quite important, so that, that the people who might feel a little bit left out, you're able to include. And I think that's quite important. Otherwise, um, you get divisions, and that ne- that's never good for a group that you're leading. You're right, and so it's about really fostering that community, isn't it? Having everybody all part of the same thing. Now, of the many hats and roles you've had over your career, can you tell us about the experiences that have been the most fulfilling? Look, it's really difficult. I looked at that, and I think I enjoyed each as I did it. And in fact, looking back through it, it's almost that idea of living in the present as much as you can. So... I mean, the, being a president of the college was an amazing experience. It had, I have to say, both highs and lows, and they were both reasonably extreme. Um, so I really enjoyed that. I also enjoyed leading the Perioperative Mortality Review Committee. And I think I found that at sort of that mid-career or later career stage when you have fewer challenges, that really was a challenge to me to start thinking outside and thinking of how we look at the epidemiology of perioperative medicine um, and how we can try and improve our patients' uh, welfare outcomes. And so it was, it was the challenge of the new in your later career. When for a lot of people, they sort of settled into the usual old routines. I think what I had to peg back was doing multiple specialties. I think um, it was put very clearly when I went to, I think ANSCA ran a leadership course years ago. That's when I was first head of department in Wellington. And what they said then is, if you become a head of department, you can't be the best X or Y anaesthetist because you'll be spending a lot of your time out of the operating theatre. So I had to limit what I was doing and try to um, make the most of that. So right through all of that, um, I had cardiac as my specialty, but otherwise I was very much a general anaesthetist. 
Now, you were the first female anaesthetist to head anaesthesia services in Wellington from the late 1980s. Did you face obstacles at that time as a woman? And has gender been a factor in holding back your career progression? And do you think it's still a barrier or much less so in recent years? It's a really interesting question because I think it's not so much gender, but uh, domestic responsibilities. And I didn't have any of those. And so therefore, um, it was less of a problem. I think at the same time that I'd been head of department and when I finished, uh, some of my colleagues still talked about housewife anaesthetists in a somewhat disparaging tone. Um, and in fact, we have some very good female anaesthetists in Wellington, of course, as I'm sure you know. Um, so I think that as much as anything. The other interesting question is, where is the glass barrier? And I think I got above the glass barrier quite early um, because at that stage there are very few um, women in anaesthesia. I think about um, 15%, something like that. And certainly at medical school we had one, no, two female lecturers out of all the lecturers um, who taught us. And and so it was still, we were still sort of spearheading it. And so um, they'd recognised the need for women and so... Therefore, that's why I talk about getting above the glass barrier. And one of the issues is when you are in a minority and you get above that barrier is that you actually may get accelerated too fast because they think, oh, God, we've got to have a woman doing this. Here, Leona, why don't you do that? Yes. And so, so that was one of the issues. I think um, a sort of a related issue, it's not so much direct discrimination, but um, there's all the research about how people listen to female voices as opposed to male voices, what embodies um, automatic standing there and just having all the eyes on you. You had to work a little bit harder to um, establish yourself, especially if you're standing alongside a male who was in fact junior to you in the packing order, but people deferred to. So I think it was more those those issues. The direct jobs, no, I'd got above the glass barrier and so I was being promoted because I was female. Yeah, right. And I think that as somebody who didn't work at all in the 1980s, it's easy for me to look at that time period from a more sort of global perspective and think of the many obstacles that were in the way for women and how many significant changes have occurred and how much progress has occurred in that space. Um, but it sounds almost like perhaps within medicine, um, the hurdles weren't necessarily there um, quite so much as they were, you know, across other fields or in other domains of life. Do you think that that's fair? I think it was. I mean, if you look at the professions, um, I think engineering and law were far behind medicine. Um, I think also as a female going into a male intensive profession in which there wasn't a pay, a, you know, a complete pay differential. Actually, it was easier than if you were maybe in some uh, less well-paid jobs or some jobs with less social status. Now, I'm really interested to talk to you about your career journey beyond being a practicing anaesthetist because you've had such a diversity of roles. My question, and I think that many listeners who might be evaluating their career journeys will find this really valuable, is how have you managed these transitions as you've taken on the different roles? 
as I say, I think sometimes it's just I've been open to the new roles and I've automatically adjusted uh, what I've done. The time that I just overworked was the two years as president of the college. Um, I felt that I wasn't too sure which country I was in at one stage. and um, But otherwise, I think once I'd finished that and finished on council, um, I picked up a job as interim head of, at Hutt Hospital. And at that stage, I dropped um, my in-theatre work and didn't go back to it. Um, and it was to, to manage my week um, appropriately. I also at that stage dropped on call. Um, but in fact, that was uh, uh, as much an age-related thing and, you know, the issues of recovery after on-call nights, which it gets increasingly difficult as you get older. And our hospital was able to offer that. Yeah, and I agree with you. I actually have really recently done a string of consecutive nights. Now, you know, I'm nearly 40 and it's been a while since I last did consecutive nights and it really struck me how much I struggled with that compared to how well I coped with that when I was a registrar, when I was a trainee. And I think, you know, it's twofold, isn't it? It's the fact that we're older and our bodies are less adept at coping with that um, lack of sleep but also the fact that in our daily lives we've got so many more responsibilities and balls in the year and I mean certainly you um, with the so many hats that you wear there are only so many balls that you can actually take on and eventually you do need to put some down yeah now speaking of the ANSCA presidency your election to the ANSCA presidency in 2008 what were the highlights of your presidency in terms of what were you most proud of? And also, what were some of the key challenges for the college and the specialty as a whole during that time? So I think one of the things I'm proud of is showing that a New Zealander could do it and that a woman could do it. And so neither of those things now are thrown up when um, either another woman is heading towards the presidency or a New Zealander. It's accepted that they could do it. Um, and then it's, you know, who's best is is the discussion, not should we have another New Zealander or should we have another uh, woman to do it? So absolutely. Um, I think that was one thing I achieved, but it wasn't the main thing I set out to achieve. But sometimes the issues find you rather than you finding the issues. And so I went in thinking I was going to try and um, have us working towards betterment for patients, that kind of thing. And then as soon as I came in, uh, the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine decided to leave the college. And so, in fact, that was my two years' work, was um, dealing with that. We all came to the realisation that they could do it without our agreement. And so, therefore, the real job was to make it um, as amiable a divorce as we could, so that we were still able to relate to each other and we were still able to um, deliver each of us, deliver good care for patients in the areas that we were covering. So there was quite a bit to that, that there was the realisation that, yes, we had to allow it to happen, we, the College of Anesthetists, and then there was the working with the people who were going to form the College of Intensive Care Medicine to ensure that the separation was a good one. So that ended up being my life's work. The other issue, interesting issue was 
um, really getting on top of all the Australian issues. On council, you have to, but as a president, you end up being the end of the buck passing line when it comes to curly questions. And so that was quite good. And learning how to um, be a company director as well. So there was the company called ANSCA as well as the fellowship, as well as the professional leadership and getting on top of all of those issues. So, yes, it was an incredibly challenging time. It was a rewarding time and at times a stressful time. Yeah, absolutely. You're one of the driving forces behind the reintroduction of anaesthetic morbidity and mortality reporting in New Zealand. Yes. So talk us through how that was actually achieved and any challenges you faced in doing this and how it may have benefited patient safety. Look, it was an interesting one um, because originally there was the Anaesthesia Mortality Review Committee, um, which looked at reports from anaesthetists about what happened. And then that totally folded when the police used a report um, in prosecuting an anaesthetist with manslaughter. And so that crumpled. And so we had to see our way through that. Um, And I think the other people involved in that were Alan Mary and John Gibbs, very much so. Um, And so we wanted something that would um, enable anaesthetists to feel confident again about reporting. Um, And we wanted to make it perioperative as opposed to anaesthetic. When you label something as anaesthetic mortality, you are, in effect, apportioning blame to an anaesthetist. But if you make it perioperative mortality, then it really is a team issue, and it's about whether that was the right decision. And so I think as part of that, we moved into the perioperative space, and you know, which is where anaesthesia is going into perioperative medicine now. And we're working with um, the other specialties that were involved in delivering care to the patients. And I think it's that getting outside the operating theatre and seeing what happens in the theatre is only one part of the uh, whole time rather than focusing on that. So I think that was, was the challenge was bringing people alongside. The challenge is doing something um, that's meaningful within a somewhat limited budget. Um, And the challenge is identifying where you can actually make a difference. Because it's one thing to collect data, but unless you use the data, it um, just sits there as a, as a nice to have. Um, and so I think uh, when we teamed up with Doug Campbell, and it was our data that Doug used a lot to do NZ risk, then we actually have something that's out there for both patients and for um, the people looking after them to use to get some sense of um, what the likely outcomes are for a patient who is like this or what happened to patients who are similar to them when they had that procedure. So it's it enables a more informed choice by both the choice of what we offer um, and then for the patient taking on it realistically rather than believing all is going to be fine when often it doesn't. So I sort of look at what progress is being made you know, now in 2022 in terms of involving the patient in conversations around risk and benefit of procedures. And it sounds like, you know, whilst there's an immense groundswell now, what, what you're talking about was really laying the foundations for the, you know, looking at somebody's perioperative journey with that lens. And I think, it, I mean, I was part of it, but there are lots of other people part of it too. And I think it was something that had to happen, but it was good to be, 
in there and working with the other people who are trying to make it happen. So, as a member of the Health Practitioners Disciplinary Tribunal, with the experience of looking into patient complaints and how these have been redressed, have we made great strides in, say, the last decade to improve patient safety? And if so, what has been most instrumental in achieving this? I think you'd probably need a longer timescale for that. Um, The cases that come to discipline tend to be um, a very small proportion of cases and they tend to be more that have got a professionalism slant to them so the often they'll be about um inappropriate, inappropriate uh, relationships uh, disregarding the boundaries that we should have from our patients um, there will be some who especially for anesthesia drug related ones that come through to discipline um, so i think if you're looking at the the relationship ones, I think our presence and the decisions we make continue to remind doctors actually there are boundaries that should stay there between you and your patient. So we're doing that. Has it, have we decreased the incidence amongst our colleagues? I'm not sure that we have. I think rather we're there as the constant reminder of what will happen. Now, You played a really leading role in reinstating perioperative mortality reporting in New Zealand at a time when we used to rely on international data and you became the chair of the Perioperative Mortality Review Committee. The reports enabled figures and analysis of post-surgery deaths relating to issues such as gallbladder removal, pulmonary embolism, patients aged 80 or over, and low-risk collective patients. How has this reporting improved patient safety? I think patients are more empowered to talk, but I'd hope they are. Um, and I think certainly working with lay people on the tribunal has been great as, as they bring their own perspective to it. Um, and, and of course, for us, on the because there's so few anaesthetist cases coming to the tribunals, we often work uh, with doctors who come from other professions. But um, as a woman, I will be there sometimes because it might be um, a female patient and a male doctor. And so therefore, we always have to have a mixed gender tribunal and then of course I can bring in this is actually how it feels or um, an appropriate touch again Uh, you can bring in how it feels it's one of the things that I've really learned in the last probably 12 months from um, and you know sort of an increased interaction with completely non-medical members of the public through Mm. social media is how differently they view health and how differently they view, you know, certain procedures, um, some of the language that we use in medicine, and really just reflecting on uh, has, you know, we all as doctors have just lived and breathed this entire healthcare system since the day we started medical school, um, and how ingrained and normalised so many things are, and actually how incredibly valuable it is to have non-medical people um, sharing their perspectives and views when it comes to these really important things. Oh, absolutely. Now, you've mentored anaesthetists over the years, and it's such a core aspect of well-being for so many people. What would you say to someone who is considering being a mentor, and what do you think makes a good mentor? I think you have to be able to have a respectful and almost a liking relationship with the person you're mentoring. It's no good doing it with someone you actually don't get on with. So that's part of it. And that's not just for you, that's for the two of you because it's it's a relationship that you're talking about. I think it's taking yourself out of 
your own needs out of the relationship. And so it's a relationship, but it's one about the other person's needs, it's not yours. And so the ability to see the world as they see it and see the challenges as they see them and listen and allow allowing people to talk out those challenges without necessarily supplying the answer, telling them what to do, just because often people, as they talk something out, will actually come to the conclusion or will decide what they should do. But at the same time, having at your fingertips a list of suggestions that you can give if asked for them. But I think it's submerging yourself a little bit and trying to see it from their point of view. Now, I understand that you're currently taking a sabbatical for a year-long project to look at the impact that domicile has on perioperative outcomes. This feels incredibly pertinent at the moment with the the transition to Health New Zealand um, and talking about the whole concept of postcode lottery. So please tell us more about that. Well, it was something that came out of... um I work with uh, Pomrix. So at one stage, we looked at whether the DHB um, that you lived in um, altered your outcome from treatment. And certainly, I've heard them recently talk about the reasons for the new health reforms being uh, post-code um, outcomes. And But it, it's quite a challenging one. I grew up actually in the country on a farm. And uh, my parents' extended family were all farmers, and quite a few of them were in isolated places. And so, in fact, distance to your nearest hospital actually is an issue. So um, I wanted to look at this as yet another one of those determinants of outcomes that actually aren't about the patient's health um, or the operation that they're going to have, and, and to see if we can minimise, again, that that type of disparity. It's in its early stages, and the literature review, I have to say, has posed more questions than answers. Uh, But I'm going to be working with the people in Christchurch in the Public Health Department associated with the University of Otago there. Um, And so we're going to look at whether it's where you live or where you get your uh, treatment. And it probably also depends upon the type of treatment. There's a few treatments that are totally time limited. So if you have a stroke and need clot retrieval, you have to live within a very short distance of uh, probably only one or two major centres in New Zealand. Um, So it's going to be interesting to explore it. And it's just um, also something to keep my brain active and questioning and... Yes. And our final question is one that I personally really want to ask you. You've had such an inspiring career with so many incredible achievements that individually would be career highlights for most people, but put together are just so incredibly impressive. Many of our listeners are new fellows or even trainees looking at the long and seemingly obstacle-filled road ahead. What advice would you leave them, especially for female trainees or new fellows at the end of this interview? I think probably the key to it is um, not overthinking it. And so, in fact, um, not closing off avenues too early being open to different experiences and at times doing something that's unusual. So I, whenever I took up any roles, it was because people invited me to do so. There's very few of them I think that I ever went for without that initial invitation. I think one of the things that actually um, 
opened up some later avenues for me was doing a Master of Public Health. So I did that um, probably, I think, when I was 50. And that was because we were going to do the... Um, looking at the beginning of the perioperative mortality reporting. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to do it seriously, I actually need to know epidemiology. And so I went to do that unit and then somehow I passed it and um, carried on with the rest of the degree, as you do. Um, I think doing one thing led on to the next one. So none of this was planned out at the beginning. I only did my um, initial SHO position in anaesthesia to go into general practice and I was on holiday in London and I passed my primary and then all the rest seemed to flow on from that. Yeah, and I reflect on a conversation I had a little while ago with a colleague talking about thinking about where we wanted to go with our careers and thinking about leadership as being something we've really wanted to pursue and looking into the many varied qualifications that you can do, courses that you can attend to try and place some scaffolding around yourself and and really just give yourself the skills to um, put yourself forward for roles when they come. But speaking to you, it also sounds like there are some significant components of being... um, the right person in the right place at the right time with the right attitude um, and the desire and ability to get down and do the hard mahi. I think that is true. And you have to be open to that and open to changing tax slightly, open to not earning that last dollar. Um, uh, we, I mean, you have to earn enough, but at the same stage, you you can give up that last dollar like I gave up a day a week in private practice to do the Master of Public Health. Leona, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been such an honour and privilege to have you on the podcast and to talk to you about your incredible career. Thank you so much for your contribution to anaesthesia for all of Aotearoa, for all of Australasia actually, but especially for female anaesthetists in leadership roles. You are an absolute inspiration and it's been wonderful talking to you. And thank you listeners for joining me again on the New Zealand Anaesthesia Podcast. Until next time, mā te wā. 